You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number six, recording in June 2010. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandra Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. Sandy, glad to be back with you for another episode of the podcast. Well, I'm glad to be here too. I um, am especially excited because we have a guest, Maria Suarez, with us today. And uh, we actually have her on the line, and uh, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to uh, introduce her, Sandy. Okay. Maria Suarez is a survivor advocate of human trafficking, and so her story is very important to helping us understand why human trafficking continues to grow globally. Maria, hello. Hello. Hi, I'm so glad this is working out, and... Um, we have her on telephone, and I love technology because nobody had to get in a car and drive through all the traffic, so it's really great to have you. Maria, I want to ask you some questions about when you were trafficked, um, and first of all, we'll start with, where were you born? I was born in this little village in Michoacan, which um, that little village don't even exist in the map. So it's not even on the map. How many people lived in that village? At that time when I was there, it was probably like uh, 500 people. And your sister left the village, didn't she? She left the village when I was um, probably in diapers. She came to Mexico City. Then from there, she came to the United States to make a better life. And she got married, and she uh, was in United, living in the United States when I got here. And how old were you when your sister sent for you? I was on my early 16s. I was not 16 yet. I was 15, in another word. So you were 15 years old, and you came to live with your sister in California. Correct. And uh, you came across on a, on a real visa, Yes, I had my passport. So this is something I think is important for our listeners to understand is that lots of victims of human trafficking come here legally on their own and then they're trafficked afterwards. So so you were 16 and you were living with your sister. How long, how many days had you actually been here in the United States. I was in the United States not even not even a month. Probably I was here like a two weeks or three weeks. And how well did you speak English by that time? Zero. Zero. Oh, so tell us about how you met someone who began to uh, recruit you. Walking on the street, I met a woman who offered me a job, which I got very happy that I thought I was going to have a job. And um, she told me not to tell my family. What kind of job did she offer you? 
she offered me a job of cleaning and answering phones for this elderly couple, which it was uh, never at home that they're going to be traveling. So she told me that I just was going to be answering the phones and cleaning the house. So, yep. yes, I got very happy. And uh, when she told me not to tell my family, I also was agree with her because I was going to surprise my family with the job. So you wanted to surprise your family with your success. Correct. And um, how did it feel? Was that the very first job offer you'd ever had? Yes, that was the first offer that I had. Uh, we have to keep in mind that I was uh, 15. Was I supposed to be in school at that age? And uh, and um, but I was here from Mexico. I just knew and and here, and I didn't go to school. My family didn't talk about school or nothing like that because, according to them, I just was just got here recently got here so we never talk about it what did you plan to do with the money you would make from this job i was planning to help my family with with that money your sister or your family in the village my family in in the village my father my mother and i and the rest of my brothers and sisters how many brothers and sisters how many brothers and sisters maria I had left over there uh, two brothers and a sister. Wow, so what an opportunity to help your family back in a village with only 500 people and very little opportunity. So what happened next? Well, she she told me not to tell my family, and she also told me that she was not going to take me that day, but she was going to come back. Time went by, and I don't remember exactly how many days or or if weeks, but it was short period of time, not that long. She came back again. I actually thought that she was not going to give me the job, and I just put it to the uh, out of sight of my mind. I didn't care about it. Then she show up and asked me if I want, if I still want the job, and I got, like I said, very happy, and I said to her yes, but she says go with her. And I didn't want to go with her just like that. I want to let my family know that I was going to go with her. I want to let know a member of the family that I was going to go with her. And she said, no, don't do that. We're going to come back very soon. Well, the soon never came. Uh, when she says not to go, I just said, okay, then we're going to come back soon. I said, okay, so I'm going to go. So I went with her. When I went with her, I met my trafficker, and it was the house. I went. I walk in the house, and um, the man welcomed me. He was kind of like uh, happy to meet me, and, and I was kind of like uh, nervous. And I walk in, in the house, and they went to one of the rooms to talk about I don't know what. I sat on the family room or living room. It's a little room. And I'm watching the TV at the same time. I'm looking around in the house. They don't tell me about what my duties or nothing like that. They just let me in there and they go in one of the rooms and close the door and they talk and they stay there for a while. And while I'm watching TV, I'm looking around in the living room. It's this uh, windows, doors, and everything seems to have extra locks, extra um Headlocks and everything is it's kind of like uh, scary and I start getting this feeling like I'm in the wrong place 
So what did you say to them? I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. I just went waiting for them. So when they finished, I said, I want to go. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to my house and I want to go back to my family because they didn't know where I was. And by then, it's already more than just a little bit of time that she told me. So while I'm telling them that I want to go, between the women and the, and the old men tell me, well, you stay here so you can start working and you meet my wife. And I said, no, I want to go. So then he says, call. I said, I got to go to my family. He says, well, call your family. So when I was going to call my family, which is my sister, he removed a little silver thing from the phone, which was another lock on the phone. And I was able to call my sister. At that time, the only thing that I knew was my sister's phone number. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know how to go back. I didn't have any money with me, and I didn't speak English. So I called my sister. I let her know that I had found a job, and it was with the elder couple. That's what the, the woman told me. I met the man, and the man was on his 68 or 70, something like that. So my sister is not happy. My sister tells me, no, you need to come home. And I said, I, it's, they want for me to stay, and this is a job. And um, actually, it's an old man. And my sister asked me about the address, about his name, about the phone number, where I was. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know his name. I didn't know the phone number. I didn't know anything. So my sister is telling me all of these things that she wants me back. And, and I, I convinced her. I convinced her and told her that it was an elderly couple. And remember, I come from this village where you believe and trust elderly people. Mm. They won't hurt you. As a matter of fact, they take care of you. And so my sister says, okay, but you're going to come home tomorrow. I told her that I was going to come home tomorrow. And then the man says, okay, that he was going to take me home tomorrow. So... The next day never came. It was one day, it was two days, and then at the third day when I actually, I told him that I want to go home, by then I'm not feeling good. By then I already see the around of the house and I noticed that there is a lot of weird stuff. He had an altar with uh, witchcraft. He had um, these things around the altar, and it's not, I don't want to be there. I want to go back. And he didn't took me home. Did he? That, huh? Did he use the the magic to control you? Yes. After that third day is when he told me. He told me when I told him that uh, I was already upset, and I told him that I want to go home. He got mad. He slammed the door, and he told me that he was busy. He went to one of to to the room where he has his altar, and he said to me that um. He was busy, so I just wait and wait and wait. By then, I'm crying. When he came back after probably a couple hours or longer, he came out, and he was mad at me. And he told me that he was not going to take me nowhere, that he had bought me, that I was his slave, and I was there for him to do to me whatever he wanted to do to me. How much did he pay for you? He paid $200. That's what he said to me. And he paid two hundred dollars. So when I want to, when I stand up because I noticed that he wanted 
to touch me, I I ran around the uh, little um, center table around everywhere around the house trying to stay away from him for him not to catch me because he was wanting to touch me and I didn't want for him to touch me. So after a while, running and running, I think he got mad and he got tired. He tells me to get out. And he goes, opens the side door and tells me to get out. But he puts his hand over the door, the uh, the frame of the door. You know how is that door and then it's the frame? Uh-huh. So he puts his arm around there and he says to get out. When I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, if I get out, he's going to catch me. And I'm thinking and thinking how I'm going to do it. Finally, I, I guess I got brave and I ran out of the, tried to run out of the house. But I was not successful. Uh, he was able to grab me. When he grabbed me, he tore up everything that I possessed in my body. Any piece of clothing that I had on me, he tore it up and pushed me out of the house. So when I was out of the house, he closed the door. And he is looking to me through the window at me while I'm outside where the cars are driving by, passing by, and I'm just completely naked and I want to for him to give me my clothes. I don't want nothing else. I just want him to give me my clothing and he is looking at me, laughing at me that I'm just begging and telling him I want my clothes. So he finally opened the door and asked if I want my clothes. And I said, please, let me have my clothes. He threw my clothes next to him, which is in a step inside. When I bent to get my clothes and to get, it, get my clothes on, I don't know what he did. I actually don't know if he pushed me or he punched me. Or kick me. I don't know what he did to me, but I end up next to the top, and I had a big old gash on my head, and I was already raped. And he was standing by my feet. So, like many, like many victims of human trafficking, you were lied to. They offered you a job that didn't exist, and then they humiliated and brutalized you. And, and you tried to escape, you tried to escape, and yet I, you, you, became, you became his slave, and he p- spent $200 to purchase you. Yes, but after, after he raped, after, after he had uh, did what he did, he told me that um, I better not tell no one, because he knew where my family lives, that he can kill my family, and he also told me that he can report me with the police, that a police won't do nothing to him, that he was a witch, and he can do anything and everything to me and to my family. Uh, he described the ways how he was going to kill my family, and that was a fear that I didn't want to put my family through. So after that, I just felt like, how can I tell my family this? This is humiliated. How am I going to tell my family what these men have done to me? That was impossible. So I didn't 
I didn't tell my family anything. I just knew that I was going to die in the house. And then after probably after a week, I had long hair. He cut my whole hair. Mm. Left me like a little boy style. And with my hair, he did a bunch of dolls and put it all around in the house and put it in the cemetery and told me that I never was going to be able to get out of the house. Can you explain that for me, please? The hair, he used them to make dolls? Yes, he make it to make uh, witchcraft to me. And is that a familiar witchcraft that you understood from your village before? We hear stories in my village about witchcraft. We heard some things that happened. I never experienced it in my village, in my family, or on me. Uh, we saw some things in in old old tales from uh, my mother used to tell us things about people that did things, and we fear that. We fear that. And so, what did you call um, someone who did that? Brujos. 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 So he used that as another method to put fear into you. Control. Mm. Control. Correct. And he put the dolls in the house and in the cemetery? Yes, all around the house because he says I was not going to be able to get out of the house. The only way I was going to get out of there was that. And I was waiting for... Uh, for them. I was waiting to die so I can get out of there. And the windows had locks, and now you understood that the little silver thing on the phone meant that you couldn't even use the phone to call your sister. Correct. And all of this happened because someone approached you on the street that spoke your language and offered you a job. So we see from your story um, exactly the elements that are we've talked about before of human trafficking, of force, fraud, and coercion. Fraud, they offered you a job to lure you there, the force, and then the coercion, the threats, and the fear to control uh, what will happen to your family because eventually you really didn't care anymore about yourself. You just figured you would die. If you didn't keep doing what he told you to do, he made those threats against your family. Correct. Do you think that there are girls that are 15 years old in villages like yours that are dreaming about coming to the United States even now? Yes. I do believe that. Why do they Why do they why do they continue to have those dreams? Don't you think that we've told this um the media, it's been in television stories and things, but why do young girls still have those dreams? Because in villages, they don't have no television, they don't have no newspaper, they don't have no education in these issues. And that's the main thing. They don't know what's happening. Some of them, like like I said about the witchcraft when I was a little girl that I used to hear my mom telling us, I thought that was a story and, and that was, didn't happen, that was not real, you know? But... These young girls, again, they probably, if they haven't heard that, probably they think it's not true and it's just a story. So if you could go and speak to those girls, what would you tell them? If I was able to go all around 
the world the way how I dream to do. I would explain to them step by step the way how I did when I went to Oaxaca, step by step, the meaning of human trafficking and the way and how can they prevent it and how the people look. They can be charming, nice, gentle, but they can be the best. Mm. And when you went to um, the village this last year, um, how did the girls respond? Very good. They were very alert. They were actually uh, in shock to hear all of that because, like I said, they don't think that actually exists. We all think that that was on the 1800s, was already taken care, but actually never had been taken care. We still have that. So what would you say to um, a girl if you only had one minute to convince her not to come and take a job that someone offered her? What would you say? that person that it's better for that person to stay where they at don't matter if they just gonna have beans and tortillas but just to know that they're gonna be safe and I think that a lot of times the dreams that we have to a better life a lot of times we pay a very high price I pay a very high price that I all my life had been regretted why that I came to this country because that was not the right decision that was not the right choice Wow Maria that's a powerful statement beans and tortillas for safety would you like to say that same statement for um, the girls in Spanish of course el sueño americano es un sueño que todas nos tenemos de venir y tener una vida mejor, pero en realidad muchas veces ese sueño americano nos cuesta la vida, nos cuesta las vidas de nuestras familias y en veces toda una eternidad, porque a veces hasta las matan. Y yo diría que es mejor que nos quedemos en nuestro país, buscar la forma de vivir mucho mejor en nuestro país que venir a, a América o hacerle caso a una persona que nos ofrezca trabajo sin saber de dónde viene esa persona. Es mejor que nos quedemos en nuestro lugar donde nacimos, donde estamos con nuestros seres queridos, aunque comamos tortilla con frijoles, pero sabemos que estamos a salvo. Sabemos que estamos con nuestros seres queridos y que nadie nos lastima. Wonderful. That's excellent. And I really got the part about beans and tortillas and safety. Um, if someone is here in the United States and they see someone that seems to be under someone else's control in the way that it was for you, um, what should they do? Who, who can they call? We always need to have in mind that, that the number is always available. I know the number by heart. Uh, it's a number that we use, but it's 888-3737-888. And the number is where we call, we use, and that's a resource, but also um, you can call the police. I know that from my personal experience, I didn't have luck with the police, but I, they already 
had been ed- educated in that area and those issues, and I believe they will do a better job than what they did with me. Because they're listening to your story, and law enforcement training has changed so much. That 888-3737-888 number reaches the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, and in recent statistics, um, I'm told that 25% of the calls to that hotline are from victims. Is that encouraging, Maria? Yes, that is encouraging, yes. Because victims are learning to identify themselves and realize someone here wants to help them and we have resources to help them and they know how to make that phone call. But if they're like Maria's situation where the only phone is a uh, phone that has a lock on it, they're going to depend on someone in their community to be the voice. And we're the ones who have to be able to see and understand what we're seeing and pick up the phone and make a call that will change someone's life. Is that right? Here. Maria, you have a really big story, and our time is um, kind of short. So what I'd like to do is eventually let's make plans to come back and revisit your story and the process of becoming a survivor advocate and what your dreams and hopes are for that. Will, will you be available to do that with us? Correct. Okay, thank you, Dave. I didn't let you talk much on this one, but if you have one question left uh, for Maria that's just been burning there, um, take your take your shot at it. Well, I I actually have more of a, a statement rather than a question. It, um, Maria, I would say first of all, thank you for your courage. Thank you for your willingness to tell your story to um, to others and to us, and for us to be able to broadcast your story because, um, you know, Sandy, I, as I listen to Maria talk, what I'm struck by is how many similarities I hear from the stories you've told and from the, what we've learned about in the, uh, the trafficking in persons report that we talked about last time and just how many similarities there are with her story and, and the patterns that you see. And I think in it, it also very interesting that she came to the U S legally and uh, I think a lot of times we have a stereotype in our minds that this is only happening by people who've chosen to to come I- illegally to the, the U.S., and that's not the case. Um, it, it happens to all kinds of people. And the other thing that I, um, I would say is that this is just such a strong um, reinforcement for us to get this message out for the importance of this podcast, of this show, to be able to reach people because there is still so many people that don't know about this this horrible issue. And the more that we can raise awareness and really study these issues, the more that we can empower people who would become victims and empower people who would be out there advocating um, in support of ending this issue. So uh, Maria, thank you so much for, for taking your time. And Maria, I just want to applaud your dreams. I know that um, your dreams were part of what made you more vulnerable to becoming a victim but now your dreams are built on being a survivor and ending human trafficking through being a voice and being an advocate. And I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I figure that um, I cannot do anything by dwelling on what had happened to me. I think my best way of helping others not to go through what I went through it's doing what I'm doing today, which is going around 
everywhere that I can to spread the word and to tell them this is what happened to me and that can happen to you. There is a lot of people who goes around thinking or feeling that won't happen to me. Wrong. That can happen to anyone. Rich, poor, beautiful, a beautiful. That's right. <laughs> any, That's right. Any size, anything. That has no discrimination. Because remember that. And anyone who wants to learn more about Maria's story, or if you'd like um, to invite her to come and tell her story to your group, you can contact her through the Global Center for Women and Justice at gcwj at vanguard.edu, and we will pass the message on to her. Thank you, Maria, so much for being with us today, and we look forward to having you back. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you to you. Okay. Nice meeting you, David. Thanks, Maria. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.